that God is on the move in many mighty ways. He's on the move today. Do we believe it? Whatever is going on in your life, in the world, um, I ask you this question. Is Jesus Lord of your life? It's one thing to be saved, to ask Jesus into your heart, but there is also a journey of following him as king of your heart. And I'll be honest, sometimes that's hard. It takes work, right? It's not a once-and-done thing. Like I just said, it's a journey, something that we're learning every day and growing in. When we live a life of trust, there is great peace. Our service this morning is going to be ordered a little differently than what's reflected in your bulletin. But like every Sunday, we have the, the gift to declare our love for Jesus, whether that's in this church building or elsewhere. Like Susan, our board chair, reminded us through email this week, we are the church. Wherever we go, we bring the light of Jesus. And I read on Instagram last evening something um, that challenged me in light of our current health situation. It read like this, wash your hands, of course, but then be the feet of Jesus. Which ties into, again, what Susan said in her email last evening. We may not be, she says, we may not be meeting together in the same physical location, but God is calling each one of us to be sensitive to how he desires us to be the church in whatever specific context we find ourselves in, which she then goes on to give us some examples of how we can be the feet of Jesus during this time. For you, she says, this might be connecting with your neighbors in new ways, or maybe writing letters to shut-ins or people who need encouragement, or building, or building relationships with your families. Maybe the next few weeks you can commit to seeking God's heart for our larger community. This undesirable disruption of our, quote, normal might be a multiplication incubator. So next, we're going to move into a time where we hear about some of our church family being intentional about being the feet of Jesus through a missions trip that they took in January. Following that, we'll have a time of offering. We're not going to pass the plates this morning, um, but there will be a time that you can go to the back and um, give your offering in that way. Um, we'll, followed by the message. After the message, there'll be a time. Um, there's going to be a space that's carved out for you to reflect, to pray, to worship. These are uncertain times, but I'm confident that our praise can storm heaven and change things in, in the spiritual realm. And just like any other day, this war that we're fighting is not of flesh and blood, but it's of the powers of darkness. And through Jesus and his love and sacrifice for us, we are victors. The battle is won. So let's, um, let's stop and turn the service over to Jesus and invite him to move among us this morning. Jesus, we praise you this morning that there is nothing else that could ever come close to your love for us. Jesus, your love stands alone. It completely stands alone. From the heights to the lowest of lows, Jesus, your love stands alone, and we rest in that this morning, Jesus. We stand still before you this morning, believing that you won't let us down, that you will prove yourself faithful to us again and again and again, because that is who you are. You are always faithful. You are always present. 
We make room for you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, to move among us this morning. We pray for our members that are not with us this morning, Jesus, that you would minister to them wherever they are, that you would remind them that they can be a light for you, that they can be your hands and feet. Jesus, we just ask for a hedge of protection around each one of us, not out of fear, but out of recognition that you are all-powerful, Jesus, and that this war is against the powers of, of darkness, Jesus, and we want to stand firm in our faith, Jesus. I just pray that you would wash over us with a sense of, of peace, a peace that passes all understanding, Jesus. We thank you that you are here this morning. In your precious name, amen. We kind of prepared, but then we didn't. <laughs> well, it turned out different than what we. Uh, yeah. So, planned. should we do the video first? Well, yeah. that's what they said. Okay. All right. So we'll do the video. Yeah. Actually, you can do All right. What do you say? Well, then let's just start. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead? Okay. Um, is this is this on? First of all, I'll say that the two people that were on our group were Linda Swanger and uh, Sue Klinger. They're not here, but the rest of us, there were seven of us. So we had a great time. And um, one of the, this is kind of a side thing, but one of the highlights for me this year, um, we were there like last week of January. And uh, since I've been there a few times before, uh, a lot of the things are always neat about being with the boys and being as a group. We had a really good time together as a group. But uh, the the Detweilers, it's a family business. They have like maybe five grocery stores now in the area down there near uh, Sarasota. And they donate the meat for the fundraisers and um, got to talk to, I guess it was the father and one of the sons. There's like, I think four four sons maybe that uh, in the family business. So anyway, um, their generosity, uh, you know, I think 10 years ago when Gator Camp was starting, they were, they were just at a roadside stand and they've really been blessed by God and they, they uh, I think God trusts them with, you know, with uh, managing bigger things because of their uh, generosity and their heart for helping groups like uh, Gator Camp. So that, that was one of the things, takeaways for me, uh, just being blessed by their family ministry. So. Yes, that's right. 
This is mine, so I'm not going to say anything else. Where's mine? You can go ahead and say stuff. <laughs> we had pictures, so we were going to talk according to the pictures, and we don't have them now. So, um, Back to the Detweilers, when they had the roadside stand, they would give produce to boys' camp. So, you yeah, know. They did what they could. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is beside the point, but um, at Cornerstone, they have this saying, wash your hands and pray often because germs and Jesus are everywhere. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> anyway, uh, since we don't have the pictures, I'll just say um, what spoke the most to me. Um, this time especially, I, I felt like uh, the ministry down there blessed me. Um, if you can just imagine a troubled boy and imagine where, what kind of home he might come from and you know, how he behaved in school such that he couldn't be in school anymore. And now he's here in this wilderness camp and um, they teach him to sing. So imagine, imagine those boys singing together uh, with their hearts, from their hearts. They don't just wimpily sing, they sing. And um, it's just a beautiful thing and every day, every day they sing. And some of them are learning guitar and they're learning uh, bongo drums. And uh, so it's worth it to go just to hear those guys sing. Um, and then the last, I guess it was Sunday morning, they have their own little service. And they were singing songs about heaven. And that about brings tears to your eyes that these teenage boys are singing about heaven from their heart. You know, it's just really amazing. And I think Greg said 80 to 85% they have that success rate. And, and how, do you, how do you measure success? To me, it's the whole thing is success because even if the boy returns and gets in trouble with the law, even if he does, and most of them don't, they will never, ever forget what they learned those 18 months or more at Gator Camp. Um, they will remember what they learned uh, about Jesus. They will remember how they made goals and met them. They will remember how to solve problems because they're solving problems every single day. Problems with getting along with their uh, teammates or just tools to deal with fear and anxiety. So um, that impressed me the most this year. And then the other interesting thing is there's two guys uh, that they call chiefs that live with each group of boys. There's three groups of about 10 or, or so, and then two chiefs. If you can imagine being 24-7 with uh, troubled tentry of troubled boys. Uh, they need our prayer. But one of the chiefs said, um, well, they do get a day off, I think, but two days. Uh, one of the chiefs said, sometimes they think they learn the most. Yeah. So that that's, was powerful to me too, so. <clears throat> one thing I'll add, and maybe someone else is gonna touch on this, but they said there's three important parts to the ministry, and that is well, I guess the boys coming and then the staff there at camp. 
and then the community around the supporters, and uh, that's a significant part of the success as well. So, and God, God bringing that all together. Yeah. figuring out as we go here, and that's all right. I think that's what we did on this trip. You know, I, as I was reflecting on the trip, I was thinking, how could I consume, how could I really put this in one word? And, and some of the words I came up were impactful, consuming, spirit-led, exhilarating, but probably just tired, you know. I was 54, the youngest person up here, uh, and I couldn't keep up with my uh, compadres up here as, as we uh, muscled through every day down there. It was, it was really uh, interesting to be a part of it. Uh, and for me, it was my first year, so it was, it was quite the experience. Um, and it was as though we spent a month there, not a week, because of all that we accomplished, because of how impactful it was. Um, so let me talk a little bit about why it was such a, a great experience. There was such an authenticity of the positiveness of it. It was 100% positive from the team that we were with, to the boys, to the chiefs, to the accomplishments, and it was just contagious. The community support, overwhelming, like they talked about Detweiler's store, uh, the community support that the school has is, is pretty overwhelming, and we witnessed that with the fundraisers that we were involved with. One, two of the thing, fundraisers that we supported down there was, I believe it was Tuesday night, uh, we made uh, pork uh, platters uh, with barbecue or with uh, potato salad. We made 50 gallons of potato salad, along with all the pork, and, and what an orchestration of uh, team to pull this off. So with the 1,000 people, we lined up, and they just kept coming and coming and coming. It's, they have a community down where a lot of the Amish people from different states come there to have a winter retreat, and they pull up with their uh, three-wheel scooters, uh, bicycles, and uh, wow, what a, what a thing to witness. But part of that experience, I watched two different bishops talk about the experience of Gator Camp and the impact. And by having two bishops there, they had strong community support. Um, and then they do bus tours. They load up people and they take them out to the camp and that's another way they, they raise money for the camp. So, uh, and the second fundraiser was on Saturday and that was something we worked out for several days. Again, Detweiler's donated all the meat. There was 240 racks of ribs and that's a lot of rib. Um, and then 90 pounds of bacon and, and I found out the secret recipe. Bacon on a stick, you roll it with, help me out here Conrad, um, brown sugar and crushed pecans. You put that on a stick. I mean, bacon is good anytime. You could put it on bark and people would eat it, but, um, or maybe just me. But um, what an experience to sell 90 pounds of bacon on a stick, and, and people could not get enough of it. So as we work together on that program, uh, two great fundraisers for the camp. Um, then the, back to the camp. Uh, when we got there, we received a tour of the camp, and when they say wilderness, it truly is. You're out in the, out in the, almost feels like the Amazon. You're out there in the middle of 250 acre um, property that's all full of Florida trees and stuff, you know, palm trees and all that, and the, and the kids make their own shelters, and they're, they're out there. They come in, um, two days a week they, they make their own meals out there, and they plan for that, but the rest of the time, they're out there. Um, and they're doing things, they're taking canoe trips and working together as a team. It's all about teamwork, planning, organizing, achieving goals together. Um, 
the work we did was meaningful to all of us. Uh, we included building fences, uh, food prep, fundraisers. And so each night we went back, uh, we did devotions. At the end of the day, we came back to our house that we stayed in, we did devotions, and we all passed out. So um, <laughs> quite, a, quite an experience. Um, probably one of the most impactful experiences was Wednesday night. We uh, participated in Vespers. I was asked to speak about um, something that was uh, impactful. I might have to skip that part. Um, talked about Ben. My wife does a better job at that than I do. Um, it was the first time we talked about it. Anyhow, let me, let me move on. Um, so about the program, the entire program is focused on helping boys one at a time and creating a positive experience. They learn coping skills that will last a lifetime. Um, the boys are evaluated and qualified to be there. The ultimate decision is made by each boy. The boys just aren't dropped off there. They are there uh, because they want to be there, and, and it's an evaluation process. An average boy stays about 18 months. It's very organized and a structured program. It's all tied to planning and, and um, goal outcomes. And speaking of the goals, the boys had posted some of the goals that, that made it impactful for them, and this was their goals on, on posters. So I'll read some of those. Effectively learn the art of evaluation. Evaluate better to learn from our mistakes and plan better for our future. Represent ourselves like young men on and off the camp property and talk about the real problems and handle our feelings instead of acting on them. So very, again, very goal-oriented. They're trying to understand what's happening to them. It's like all of us, you know, it's not what happens to us. It's how we respond to these situations. So what are some of the key learnings that we had? You can't have a bad attitude if you're singing and make a joyful noise. And we saw that the whole time we were there. They'd start in the morning, they would sing at their meals, they would sing in the evening. And so I guess that's true for all of us, right? We can't have a bad attitude if we're singing. They have a powwow every night. And that's, at the end of the day, they sit around a little campfire and they talk about the problems of the day. Um, and isn't that true for all of us? At the end of the day, what were the problems we had and, and how can we respond to those problems? Um, they work together to solve problems. Another key learning was everyone loves bacon on a stick. Um, and Gator Camp is saving these boys by teaching them life equipping and spirit-led skills. And then finally, Gator Camp is a special place with special people um, with un serving in with unconditional love. So thank you. I just want to add that probably the Wednesday night was one of the most significant parts of the week. And, um, the, you know, hard for Dan to share it, but he, he shared about his own experience with cancer and the healing, but also Ben's journey and, and experience in prison, and it really made an impact on the, on the group there. So, that's good. Okay. Um, I'm going to review some things here. I was going to be first, but I was working with my phone down there, trying to get that video up. I'm not sure what's going to happen with that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Gator Camp... Is a boys camp in Florida, helps troubled boys from ages six, 10 to 16. There's three groups of boys, about eight to a group. They come from broken homes, real problems. Some live with grandparents some, or aunts or parents. They don't have a, a formal family unit like we would think of it. The guardian they live with 
is not equipped and does not know how to handle the struggles and issues that these boys have. The boys have to agree to come to Gator Camp, and the camp works with the boys and their families Whoops. Uh, with the issues. The issues are family-related, not boy-related, but it comes out of the family unit that they're having the behaviors that they are. The boys, for the most part, have never had structure in their lives or have they had responsibility that comes with a fam being a family unit. Most don't have family meals together. They don't know how to work together as a unit. Most of them are way behind in their schoolwork. With camp, the boys have structure and they know their routine. They live outside in open structures with thatched roofs. They get up in the morning, they make their beds. They sweep their area. They eat most of their meals in chuck wagon, which is inside. And two days a week, they cook at a campsite on open fires. They have to budget, they have to make the menu, they order and prepare the food. They also do repairs around their camp. If the cheeky, which is what they call their open structure, needs work, they submit a permit to the chief, that's the adult person in their group, and they measure and get, get a material list. They submit a projected start date, a projected completion date, and they answer to the chief if it's not finished when, they, when, they're, when it's done. They also have canoe trips. They have hikes that are planned. They plan the trips themselves. They list the supplies they will need. This is their school. This is how they learn. They also have a math and reading tutor that comes in. And there's a library there that they're encouraged to take books out and read. They work together. If there's a problem, they, they stop as a group. They work out the problem. Each group has two chiefs that live with the boys 24-7. One of the chiefs have off two days, they each have off two days a week. The average stay of the boys is 18 months. They have devotions and they sing, and like they said, <laughs> they sing a lot. And uh, the director, Chief Greg, says you can't, you can't have a bad attitude if you're singing. A lot of boys come to know God at camp, and they're baptized at the lake at camp. This may be the first time some of the boys have had ever any contact or heard of God. There are camp counselors that work closely with families during their stay and also after returning, after the boys graduate from camp and they return home to their family and go back to their regular school. On return to school, most of the boys are back on track or they're at a grade level higher than what, what they would be for their normal, their normal uh, age. Some have gone above that. Some of the boys return to camp as staff. Others return to camp and help out and volunteer. Gator camp is a threesome. First part and most important, the boys. Second, the staff. Third, the people that volunteer with time and um, donations and pray for this mission. The chiefs that live with the boys go through a lot with these boys, and they express that they are changed by the lives, by living there. If you are interested in doing mission work, they need chiefs, cooks, maintenance people, 
Some retired people go to Florida for a couple months over the winter to volunteer. If you would like to go for a week, we most likely will be going again next year. Think about it. You won't be, you won't be unhappy that you went. Thank you. Uh, Ethan got the pictures. He's going to go through them real fast there. So. What's he doing? Scotty. Oh, okay. <laughs> so this is the fundraiser place. And they were seriously playing Shuffle. shuffleboard. <laughs> uh, this was pulling the pork at the picnic. Getting set up for the picnic. Here we were tearing membranes off the ribs. 240 pounds of ribs, was it? Or? Yeah, rack, racks, yeah. Putting pipe in the new pig barn has eight stalls. Uh, them working on the barbed wire fence. They got their battle scars. <laughs> The boys singing. Uh, half day we had off, we saw this alligator from above. <laughs> we were safe. And did this uh, hanging canopy walk, yeah. Our team. <laughs> These was the smokers. Paul was in charge of the bacon. The bacon sold for a dollar. One one stick for a dollar. And there we are selling the ribs, which was nonstop from like nine to two or three people just coming for the ribs. Four of us were working and could barely keep up. Chief Greg. This is the inside of where we stayed. It's a new building that they made for teams. We lucked out. We each had our own private bath and bedroom, but uh, it might not be the same next year, so just warning. New smoker that was donated. The bedrooms. The tiki hut and whatever. 
seasoning the pork. The ladies uh, replanted some trees, so this is what we're doing here in pots. This is back to selling the pork. The slides are kind of jumbled. <laughs> it was cold that day, very cold and windy. Planting trees. <clears throat> then we took a ride in the back of a pickup around the base, and you'll see that video. Hopefully. This was Paul's highlight and Linda's non-highlight. Are you videoing? I am. <laughs> <laughs> We're picking an orange wow. that's high up in the tree, a wild orange. <laughs> uh, Dan and Paul. I don't want a piece of fruit. You okay? Oh, I hope he's okay. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word. Oh, there you go, Willie. Well, don't clunk somebody. Well, Willie's probably weighs less than Paul. Did you get hurt? Oh, Willie, come on now. I'm not that bad. I'm all right. Did you land on your knee? Oh, man. Oh, 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 what is it? A grapefruit? Yeah. Looks there. That's what we got. A grapefruit. Ah! <laughs> I guess it's a grapefruit. Well, right. How was that? You are just. I'm not counting out the seats, but I really don't like. Really feel your prayers the week we were at Gator Camp. We felt God's presence. There was a lot of God things that happened there. And we got along real well. We felt like a family, and we really bonded that week. I tend to try to get as much work done as possible, and I, maybe I can be a little pushy sometimes. But Friday, I felt we were to take off a little early, and that's when we rode around in a pickup and picked that grapefruit, and that, that was really a good time, and I'm glad I heeded to taking off a little early. And I had to ask everyone to write their thoughts about the week and having uh, every night in our group, each person was in charge of having devotions and that, that was a real meaningful time. And then we spent time practicing for the Vesper service and that, that was really a good time. And a special thanks for Linda for lining up the flight in the rental car. We served that week, but we also received. I have 200 plus prints in a book on a table behind the sanctuary. You're welcome to look at that afterwards. Thank you. Hi, Jen Gockenauer here. Um, great to see you all this morning. Um, there is a little bake sale going on downstairs after church in the foyer. Um, all proceeds go to MCC. Unfortunately, um, due to everything happening, the relief sale in Harrisburg in the beginning of April was canceled. 
but we can still collect money. Um, and yeah, I'm sure they will appreciate all that is collected. So anyway, see you in the foyer afterwards. There's some great goodies. Um, there's some bread by Conrad and some of our other kiddos and stuff bake some good stuff. So um, see you in the foyer afterwards. Thanks. We are going to sing uh, one song together, and during this time, um, if you haven't given your offering yet this morning, you can head to the back. There's um, a stand with an offering plate that's back there. Um, but we invite you to stand and um, declare this with us this morning. It is well.
Lord, we are bowed before you this morning to declare that you alone are God, that you are faithful and true, that you are the author and perfecter of our faith and a lover of our souls, that you are our hope, and upon you, Lord, we stand, and you are a firm foundation, that when all around us um, seems scary and uncertain, we can be assured that you never change, that you remain the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we just acknowledge you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for, um, for your presence here with us this morning. And we just declare that you are good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness and your love for us. And I just pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to receive the word that you have for us. And Lord, I pray for a shield of protection around Conrad as he delivers this word to us this morning, Lord. I pray, Lord, for your strength to be upon him. I pray, Lord, for your words to flow through him effortlessly, Lord, with clarity, with boldness. And I pray for his protection, Lord, for the week to come following the delivering of this message. Lord, I pray that the things that he has to share that are of you would would come forth, and those that are not of you, Lord, would fall away. May he keep his eyes fixed and focused on you as he is delivering this word from you, Lord. Thank you for his faithfulness. In Jesus' name. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name, including all of those who will listen uh, later or participate in our worship service later um, through the recording uh, that is happening. One of the most significant changes that I've experienced as one who was ordained 20 years ago in this congregation, and Heidi and I began attending almost 25 years ago, is a sense of order and stability that has come. After a relatively stable season with Richard Frank as leader from 1970 to 1995, this congregation, as many of you know, experienced a high turnover in its spiritual leadership. And many of those transitions were painful and difficult, and there was often confusion about who was leading. I was part of that transition. Heidi and I served from 2000 to 2005. And I think perhaps it's 20 years later that I'm doing some reflecting upon that and some of this message this morning as we think about living on the west side of the Jordan, which the last two messages have been about, this passing from the east to the west, as the children of Israel did, will be a little more autobiographical than perhaps it sometimes is. One of the reasons that I believe in retrospect that, Heidi, that God called Heidi and I back to this congregation in 2011, as I've shared in the past, was his call to give us a new opportunity to lead this congregation into God's mission in a way that I've said very clearly I failed to do the first time around. But I think it was also to redo again some things where we had failed the first time. If some of you remember those years, I worked hard at trying to bring together a new, um, 
ministry structure, which the congregation, rightly so, did not affirm. But I think the effort was to try to create some clarity about where is, where is leadership and authority and order, because those things have always been very, very important to me personally. When I'm working with congregations, I often say, where is authority? And if they say, we don't know, I, I say, until you figure that out, you won't get on with God's mission. Because God's mission requires that you know who's leading. Until there is clarity about who's leading and where authority lies in any organization, whether it's family or church or country, it's very difficult to get out of the wilderness and to cross the Jordan into the land God has for us. Part of my calling over the last 25 years in numerous places, both at the college, in Lancaster Conference, the broader church, and in our own congregation, has been, I see in retrospect, to enter places where there's often confusion and ambiguity and some disorder to help bring clarity and order so that we can get on with whatever the mission of the organization is. And I've come, I hope, humbly to understand that that's part of my calling, that that's part of why God placed me on the earth, as he's placed you on the earth for a whole variety of reasons and callings too. And central to this calling for me has been a high value on submission to those who are leading, an honoring of authority, and a resistance to rebellion against those who are leading. I will never forget, and I've shared this with you in the past, discovering the verse in 1 Samuel 15, 23 that goes like this. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. In other words, Samuel said to Saul, you have lost your position because you rebelled against what the Lord had for you. You rebelled against the Lord's authority. It's a pretty strong verse, and I'll never, remember as a, I'll never forget as a kid remembering that verse and hearing it for the first time, that when we rebel against those who are leading, we're participating in the evil and darkness of the devil's agenda, and it will always result in us losing our position and our place. And it's exactly what happened to God's people on the east side of the Jordan when they rebelled against God and God's plan to take them into Canaan when they rebelled against Moses, whose desire was to take them across the Jordan. When I was 15 or 16 years old, I participated with teen missions in a summer-long missions project in Honduras. It was, we were a team of about 30, and one day the team of about 30 youth decided that they were going to the top of a mountain to have a meeting to plot against the team leaders, to plot a rebellion against the leaders they were angry with. The leaders were off-site having a meeting somewhere, and I remember very distinctly saying to them, I cannot go up with you. I'm, I, can't, I can't plot against our leaders with you. And so I stayed down. I stayed down alone while my friends went up to the mountain. I knew that joining them and plotting against our leaders would only end up in trouble for me and for our community as well. I say all of this because I want you to know this goes way back for me. This is one of my central values, not for me, but for a community as a whole, for the good of a community as a whole. I say this because I am convinced that as we have resolved some of these questions as a congregation about who is leading and where is authority and accountability, it has also enabled us to cross the Jordan into the west side where God has always intended us to be. And as I've said before, this isn't the first passing across the Jordan for us. 
I've suggested in the email to you this week that every generation must look again at where are they. And some will look back at where we were and say, you were short-sighted. It's time for us to cross the Jordan again. I'm not at all suggesting this is the first time or the last that people in this congregation will say, we need to go into a place we've never been before. This past Thursday evening in our monthly board meeting, I recounted to the board the faithfulness of God in this congregation over the last decade. As the board led through some very difficult and painful and confusing situations that could have resulted in significant division and disruption. But the leadership of the board over these past 10 years, Lester Landis, Steve Keener, Susan Hochstetler, their executive committees, have consistently led by the kind of faith that the author of Hebrews describes in chapter 11.1. Faith that is sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith that is sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith in a God who Paul describes in Romans 4.16 as the one who gives life to the dead and who calls things that are not as though they were. I love that phrase. A God who calls things that are not as though we were, they were. That's our responsibility if we're people of faith. To call things that are not as though they were. To name them into existence because we believe in a God who is naming them into existence. God himself who created the world named it into existence from nothing. And he continues to do that and we get to be part of that story. Leaders who, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, were... the leaders of our board have been those, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, who have recognized that the light and momentary trials that the board and the congregation have faced at times have achieved for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all of those trials and difficulties. We've had a board and leadership in that board that has fixed its eyes not on what is seen, says Paul, but on what is unseen. Through various crises, the board has remained committed to the mission of God in this place, making a decision five or six years ago to stay here, in this borough, in this neighborhood. And as I've said, through a variety of crises, the board remained committed to testing whether a building and renovation project was part of that mission. And Lester Landis, in particular in those years, just kept pushing through one step at a time. And we would come and say, this month I did this, and this month I did this. And we wondered, would it add up to anything? What we often don't realize as we take steps by steps by steps, that they are steps of faith. And we don't know the outcome. We don't know what's going to happen. But we serve a God who is leading us into those places where we've not yet been and don't know what they will be. This board continued to do that. And over the years, again, in the midst of crises at times, the board dissolved the leadership team, instituted the ministry team, not knowing if we would ever find ministers And God has graced us with gifted ministers on that team who are leading effectively. The leaders of this congregation over the last decade have walked by faith, being sure of what they hoped for and certain of what was not at always very clear at all. And as I have submitted to the board and its leadership, and I've told you over and over again that Heidi and I submit to their leadership, as I have honored their authority to lead this congregation, in governance as they do, they have also honored me and Heidi and all of the ministers as we serve. Because the principle is this, humility always brings honor. Humility always brings honor. 
Submission to those who are leading brings order and blessing and ultimately the fulfillment of God's mission. We see that throughout all of Scripture. Arrogance brings destruction, but humility brings honor. I say all this to underline the fact that as a congregation, we have been able to cross the Jordan because there is a new willingness to honor our leaders in this congregation and to submit to their authority. And the order of that authority goes something like this. The board submits to Christ. Heidi and me submit to the board. The ministers submit to us. The members, all of us, submit to the ministers and the ministers and the board. Members submit to the ministers and the board. This clarity and submission to authority has allowed us to cross the Jordan and to move into the most exciting place that we've been in some time, a place we've never been before. This week, I watched this play out like this. The board was discerning what to do about today's service in the midst of, and the services to come, in the midst of all the news that we were hearing and all of the uncertainty. I made it clear to them that this was not a ministry decision, that this was a board decision, this was a board governance decision, and that as ministers, we would support whatever decision they made and work with it. They discerned without tension that evening, without any tension, even as there were various opinions and perspectives. And they've done so over the last few days by email and by text. They honored us as ministers asking what we thought. They honored you as a congregation wondering how you felt. And they honored our community by thinking about the impact on our community. Supporting the board and their discernment freed me and the ministry team from the awkwardness and difficult place that many of my colleagues as pastors in Lancaster Conference found themselves in this week having to make decisions on their own among congregations and members who had a whole variety of opinions about who, what, what should we do and what should we not do. I was freed of that because this was a board decision to make. Again, not only does submission to those who lead us bring honor, it also brings peace and freedom and rest. When there is clarity about who is leading, when we submit to those in leadership over us, there is unity and there is health, and we get traction to do what God's called us to do. Again, I say all of this as well because it becomes clear that as God's people crossed the Jordan River, they were very attentive. And we're going to look at a story in a moment from Joshua. They were very vigilant and attentive to make sure that there was no rebellion in their ranks because they had seen what rebellion had done to their parents and their grandparents And they were refusing, who had refused to submit to God and to God's leaders. And that rebellion had kept them in confusion and wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And their children were saying, we can't let that happen again. It's interesting to watch the story. They were vigilant that that their parents had tasted of the rebellion and the fruit of it. And they had tasted of the goodness of God. The children had tasted of the goodness of God by submitting to God and God's authority in Joshua. And the last thing they wanted to do was another rebellion. The last thing they wanted to do was to go back to the east side of the Jordan. So I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Joshua 22 to look at this example. And the context for this example is that as the people were about to cross the Jordan from the east side to the west, there were three tribes that were given land on the east side. Moses said to them, they said, look, Moses, there's good land here. Can we stay here? And he said, yes, you may stay here. You don't have to cross to the west. You don't have to settle on the west side of the Jordan. 
but you must join your families and friends of the other tribes to fight That's the enemies on the west side before you can come back to the east side. In other words, this is our fight, all of us. We're in this together, so come with us across the Jordan, then you can come back to the east side. So in chapter 22, those tribes are coming back to the east side. They're getting ready to come back to the east side because the enemies on the west have been, have been, have been, been destroyed. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are now heading back to the east side. And I'd like to pick up here at verse 10 in chapter 22. So the, these are the east side Israelites. When they came to Gelioth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan, but before they do that, they build a big altar. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gelioth near the Jordan, sorry, I... And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gelioth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So here's what's happening. These three tribes are getting ready to cross the Jordan River to the east side, but they build this big altar. And the tribes that are staying on the west think they're organizing a rebellion. And so they say, we are going to come at you. We're going to, we're going to come at you as warriors. We're going to do war with you. And so the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and they said to them, what are you doing? Why are you building this alternative place to worship? There's only one place to worship. And you're going to have to come across the Jordan to worship there on the west side and not this one right near the Jordan. You are rebelling against God and against our leadership. Do you see how attentive they were to this? They were vigilant that rebellion not be part of their camp. But those from Gad and Reuben and Manasseh said to them, wait a minute, we're, we're not... We're not building this as rebellion. We're not building this as sin. Because the Western tribes were concerned that they would bring plague on them. And they cite experiences from the past where this had happened. And they said, don't you remember how our parents rebelled? And they said, we're not here to rebel against the Lord. We're not here to rebel against the community. We just want our, our families and our children to later be able to say, this marks what God did. Because we're concerned that if you on the west see us on the east, you might divide yourself from us. And we want this to mark for your children and for ours that we are one people. We are not a divided people. This marks our unity. That's what we're about. And so they were allowed to have their altar because it did not represent rebellion against their leaders or against God. What is going on in this story in the west side of the Jordan? As I've said, what is going on is there is a new vigilance amongst God's, God's people that they must nip any rebellion in the bud before it gets started. Knowing that if rebellion takes root and grows, it will create havoc and destruction for the entire community and for the individuals who bring it on. And the community as a whole will stand to suffer and be harmed and even destroyed. And you can think about the story of last week of Achan. Who stole, from, who stole goods out of Jericho, and he and his family were destroyed, but the whole community lost a war in the meantime and lost people. 
In challenging their brothers and sisters on the east side, those on the west remind them of the previous experiences in history where rebellion had undone and brought God's anger on the community as a whole. In this story, the people are holding one another accountable to not rebel against God and God's leadership. Holding one another accountable to honor God's leadership and the leadership God had ordained and anointed because they had learned on the east side the failure of doing so. They had learned that if they didn't honor those God ordained as leaders, they would end up being destroyed and they would fail to get on with God's mission. As we as a congregation have moved to the west side, if we want to continue thriving in this new place, it will mean continuing to honor those who God brings into leadership, not just now, but into the future. It will also mean that when we hear others criticizing our leaders, second-guessing our leaders, challenging, resenting, gossiping about our leaders, we must, like like the folks on the west side, say to those folks, be careful what you're doing. We must be vigilant in stepping in and putting an end to such criticism, second-guessing, and gossiping by saying, wait a minute, the leaders in this congregation have been discerned by we as a congregation, so why would we ever criticize them? We have put them into place. We have called them. I know this is being recorded, but one of the things that's happened at the college in the last, number of, in the last year has been incredible criticism against the administration. And I, I've, I've said to some of my colleagues, wait a minute. Is, is our administration only good enough to hire us and promote us, and then they're stupid after that? Like, why do we think they're good enough to hire and smart enough to hire us and promote us as faculty, but then they do everything else wrong? If we called these leaders in this congregation, then we must believe that God has also called them, and we must treat them that way. We put ourselves in jeopardy when we don't do so. Ourselves and our community. Don't we understand that God cannot bless us if we come against the board who's governing over us, who has been authorized to govern and discern, and the ministers who've been authorized to do ministry? What should we do if we hear these things being said? I want to encourage you to tell those individuals to talk to those they have concerns about. And if they will not do so, to cease from expressing their concerns and criticism, reminding them that in doing so, they risk bringing judgment on themselves and on the congregation. Quite a number of years ago, when our congregation was going through a particularly difficult time, and it was relatively well known in our surrounding community, a leader in our community from another congregation asked to meet with me, and in the process was deeply critical of our congregation's leadership, of me, of the board. And in that one moment, as I was listening to him, he strongly declared vehemently that God would bring down and destroy our congregation. And in that moment, I put up my hand and I said, I do not receive that word from you. You are in no position to speak that over God's people in this congregation. And by God's grace, our congregation was not destroyed. And in fact, has only grown, has become healthier, has built and renovated, has developed its ministry team, and on and on and on. 
We don't have to receive that stuff, folks. For decades at Elizabethtown College, I have tolerated faculty meeting after faculty meeting where my colleagues have blamed, criticized, and come against the college administration. I often left with a headache. It got particularly difficult early this year for our new president. And after a meeting where she was simply raked across the coals, I said, can I come visit? And I, went, I met with her and simply encouraged her that she was where she needed to be, that there were others of us who were with her and not against her, and that she needed to make tough decisions. And more recently, in the last few weeks, I've sent her another letter reminding her that she's exactly where God wants her to be and that I'm praying for her. And then finally, a few weeks ago, after sitting through one more meeting that I could not tolerate anymore, I began to talk among my 100 colleagues. And after three or four statements, I said, I know I'm speaking more now than I've spoken in 27 years. And everyone chuckled a little bit. But I said, it is time for us to stop. It is time for us to stop speaking against those who are leading us, who are in authority over us. It is time to redo that relationship. We are not helping ourselves. We are destroying ourselves. And I got, immediately, I got immediate pushback from my colleagues, but I came back again and again, deciding I just don't care anymore. Because we are hurting ourselves when we come against those who God has placed in leadership. I am convinced that whether at the church or the college or the family or conference or in our marriages, rebellion is always the work of the enemy to create confusion and chaos. Brothers and sisters, we are entering, as we all know, a time of uncertainty and anxiety and difficulty as a country and as a world, as a community, as a church. Many of us will have different perspectives about how we should do church during this time, what we should do, how we should respond, and on and on. And I want to remind us that the key to getting through this is the key will be getting through it together. The key to living on the side of the west of the Jordan over the past three years has been learning in new ways to submit to God and to God's leadership. And this will remain the key as we move forward, both in this immediate crisis, but as we also come through it as well. And so I just want to say to you, when you hear someone second-guessing the board, or second-guessing the ministers, or second-guessing the deacons, or challenging or criticizing or questioning their previous actions, when you hear these things, be courageous. Remind those folks where rebellion comes from. Remind them that our thriving as a community will always depend on honoring God and our leaders. Remind them that our well-being as a congregation and community depends on our doing so. Remind them that humility brings honor and submission brings freedom. And I, I offer this message this morning not primarily, I hope you hear from myself. I have, I have been aware over the last number of years that much of what we have walked through is not for us, but it's for leaders who come after us. That we are called to walk through hard times because others will follow us. And if we don't do the hard excavation work, if we bail out and say, I'm out of here because this is too hard, somebody else is going to have to do it. And so what we are doing when we walk through hard times is lowering mountains, raising valleys, 
making rough places plain and, and crooked places straight. That's what we're doing. Why? So the glory of God can be revealed in new ways here in our community and in our world. At the end of his life, Joshua, in Joshua 24, 14, says to the people, look, this is the deal. I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but I know about me. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This morning, as we close, I just want to give us a chance to stand together and to say that together. Don't stand if you don't mean it. But I'd like to say it together on behalf of our congregation and our households. That this household idea is for our separate families, but it's also for us as a congregation. As for us and our household, this community of faith, in this season on the west side of Jordan, we will serve the Lord. Would you stand with me as we commit this to the Lord? And I'll, I'll say it once and then ask you to join with me. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Say it together with me. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Again, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. God, you have heard us this morning. And Joshua came back to his people and he said, you know, I don't really think that's true. And they said, no, it is true. It will be true. And so you have heard us this morning. And we want to give you thanks that we're not on the east side, but we're on the west. But we need you as much to lead us here as we did crossing the Jordan as we did in the east. Remind us in this crisis in our, in our community and in our world that we're, we're still on the west side. That we're still following a God who led us step by step from the east across to the west. And you will lead us as well. Give us hope. May we be people of hope, people of confidence, people of courage, people of joy, even in the midst of uncertainty. Believing what we cannot see, confident of what we hope for. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look through the book of Joshua, two things you see that I am going to have several of our ministers share with, just as they did last week. One is that part of their work was finding places of rest. Um, time and time again, you see this word rest, and they found rest. Heidi's going to share for a few moments about why minister of care, and what minister of care, what she does as minister of care, and I'll let her connect the dots to the rest. But what Heidi's called to is clearly a ministry of providing spaces of rest. After that, Kate will share as minister of worship. And time and again, you see on this west side of the Jordan that worship is what led the warring. It wasn't them warring on their own. It was always warring through God's power and by God's authority, and worship led that. So Heidi and then Kate. Good morning. I am Heidi Kanegi, and I'm the Minister of Care here at Etown Mennonite. And I've um, been given the task of answering two questions related to Minister of Care. One is why, the why of Ministry um, of Care. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, my personal, my personal um, mission um, in the sense of call as to how the Lord wants me to serve him in this season and in this role and my, my personal mission statement is this, to offer care, counsel, and prayer in order to prepare an environment or a space 
that fosters spiritual discernment and heart transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit. In this calling, I engage and cooperate with the Holy Spirit to fulfill this role, not perfectly, but opening myself um, to being transformed, mentored, counseled, and discipled. I'm of the firm belief um, that I cannot give to you as a congregation what I am not willing to also receive. And so it's very important for me that I am also receiving um, counsel, discipling, um, and being mentored. Also, safe spaces have always been an important, have been important to me, and some of you have heard me repeatedly talk about creating space. Um, over the years, I've, I've talked about that with especially the ministers that I supervise. And scripture is full of examples of the Lord's creating space for us. One in particular is a very familiar passage, and that's Psalm 23. And I've been recently struck by this passage um, as being one of the Lord creating space for us. And I, and I know it's very familiar, but I'm going to read it, and I'd like you to think about it as I'm reading it in relation to the Lord creating space for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. When I read this, um, I just got this beautiful picture of the Lord creating a space for us, a space beside quiet waters, a space in green pastures, a space for us to be restored, for our, our souls to be restored. He prepares a table for us in the presence, in the midst of our enemies. This is talking about space that the Lord creates for us and invites us to every single day. Probably in January, maybe, maybe even um, more recently, I think I began to understand uh, my passion. I hadn't ever really understood exactly my passion for creating safe space for other people. Um, but it really came, just recently I, I recognized, the Lord just downloaded this and I just was overwhelmed by the thought of his grace and his care and love. But this space, uh, this whole idea of safe space really came to me um, from my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who did that for me, who, who continually created a safe space for me. And... The other really amazing piece um, is that way back in my childhood, she helped to create this for me and also taught me the, um, helped me to memorize the 23rd Psalm. So I would spend the night at her house and, 
and she, in the evening, she would say a verse, and I would say a verse, and she would say a verse, and after I learned it and I was able to say it, she paid me a quarter. <laughs> because you could buy a lot with a quarter then. But I was so moved by the Holy, by, by just the power of the Lord and through the, through the power of his Holy Spirit to, to take something that I experienced way back here, transform it in a, you know, just, just to transform it to, to my personal mission and, and serving the Lord today was, I don't know if you're following that, but it was, it was overwhelming to me. So that's the why for me of ministering, um, of being minister of care. The how is, um, is out of this mission statement, this personal mission, and the Lord's call on me as minister of care. What do I do? I do hospital visits. I do nursing home visits. I visit people in their home. I meet with folks to... Um, to discuss a particular concern that they have, and I walk with a few people in, um, in addressing those concerns. I oversee the deacon ministry um, and provide supervision to the female ministers. Additionally, with Conrad, we counsel premarital couples and coach married couples who are facing some marital challenges. I'm just going to briefly um, just review what the deacons do in the deacon ministry. It is, um, I think, a powerful ministry. I am thankful to the Lord for his continued kind of um, helping to shape this and, to, and, and tweak it. And for the feedback of the deacons, I am, I am very, very grateful and for their, their, the care that they do. So currently we have two deacon, two individuals who serve as deacons and six couples who serve as deacons, and they serve a three-year term. And if you'll bear with me, I am going to read um, what the responsibilities are. Deacons will be on call for one month of the year to be available to attend to crises and care needs that members have. I will receive um, the care calls and direct deacons as to the needs. I will also con I continue to make initial and additional visits as well for hospitalizations, crises, um, but if there are on and crises, but if there are ongoing needs, like someone's in the hospital for long periods of time, or in a rehab, um, then the deacons also help with uh, to do those on ongoing visits. Um, otherwise, the deacons are not responsible for any care needs for the other 11 months of the year unless they agree that they want to do some additional, um, they want to help on the months where there, there are no deacons assigned, and we have a number of those months. So what do the deacons do? They make visits and send cards according to the deacon visitation spreadsheet for their month as assigned by me. And the, the spreadsheet is something that I created um, several months ago, I have a list of folks who I, who I have discerned need, um, need to be visited on a regular basis. I identified how many times a year they need to be visited. It could be for various reasons, maybe because they don't attend regularly because of health concerns or they're, they're older or um, because they're in nursing homes. And then I have all of those visitations 
divided out over the year, and each deacon or deacon couple is responsible for maybe four or five visits each month. I will be in touch with the on-call deacon, so prior to, to their being on call that month, I meet with them, review the, the schedule that they have, and I meet with them also at the end of the month to just check in about how it went. I am available to the deacons 24-7 if they have concerns, issues that they need to address with me or need some, need some counsel on. Uh, deacons, you may notice that deacons also serve as greeters for the month that they are on. Um, and, and deacons, of course, they report to me any concerns, um, anything that they have become aware of during their month that I should know about. Deacons also are, they are great. They are a great group of people. They, um, they, they, they all regularly attend the deacon resourcing meetings and participate and pray for one another. Um, so if you should happen to get a, a call that a deacon is coming to visit you, um, have no fear. There's no agenda. <laughs> it's just a visit. Um, so thank you. Good morning. Um, I am Kate Ebersole, and I'm the Minister of Worship here at Elizabethtown Mennonite. Um, I have a lot to say this morning, so if you thought you were going to get out early, <laughs> sorry. Um, but Conrad graciously um, said to go ahead. So um, I want to start out by asking you a simple question. Well, it's not really simple, but start out by asking you a question. Why are you worshiping today? You don't have to answer out loud. I just want you to sit there with it for a minute and think about it. Why are you worshiping today? In Luke 7, 37 to 38, we read about a sinful woman, and this woman was known in her town as a sinful woman, but her selfless display of worship to Jesus changed how everyone remembered her. It says, when she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Why? Because her love for Jesus knew no bounds. He had forgiven her. She had been delivered. She had been set free from her old way of life through his loving acceptance of her. And she had gotten a taste in her mouth that she couldn't get rid of and she didn't want to because she was forever changed. We worship quite simply because he first loved us. And when we have appraised the value of God's love for us, then that compels us to worship. The effects and benefits that happen through praise are many. And as I, I wrote this earlier in the week, and I read it last night again, and it kind of like hit me between the eyes. It was a, I needed these reminders. <laughs> um, but praise is a powerful war cry declaring that we will stand strong and we will praise God at all times through all circumstances. Praise takes us into the presence of God where the enemy has no choice but to flee. 
Praise invites God's presence and confuses the enemy, just like you talked about this morning, Conrad. If Satan communicates with a language of lies and praise is the opposite of that, then praise and thanksgiving can be the very thing that brings down the darkness around us. When, and we see this firsthand in Mark 5, in the account of the man who was tormented with a legion of demons. And my footnotes in the, in the Passion Translation Bible um, tells me that a legion was a Roman military unit of more than 6,000 men. This man was tormented by more than 6,000 demons, a legion of demons. Can you imagine? When Jesus stepped out of the boat and put his very foot on that shore, darkness trembled. There was an executive order that went out in the spiritual realm. And I love that. And let me remind you that that same power is within us today. It is for those of us that believe in Jesus. We have the authority that was given to us in the name of Jesus. We see the possessed man fall at the feet of Jesus, and the demons through the man asked, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And the precious word tells us um, that every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Every knee. So demons are warriors of darkness. Demons cause destruction. Demons are rebellious. But let me tell you, they still know who is in charge. Every knee will what? Bow. Will bow. Not maybe, not should, but will. And after some conversation, the legion begged not to be sent back to hell, but rather sent into the herd of nearby pigs. When Jesus said, go, they went immediately, and the pigs ran down the hill and fell into the water, and they drowned themselves. Why? Because demons only know how to kill, steal, and destroy. When we sever the lines of communication of the dark powers by waging war in the heavenlies through our worship, their strategies fall to pieces. They start to come unraveled, and hell starts to turn and destroy itself. We see people set free. We see hopeless situations restored. Walls are torn down. Lies brought into the light. And freedom is experienced in the name of Jesus, Son of the Most High God. As I said before, praise invites God's presence and confuses the enemy. And in 2 Chronicles 20, we see this displayed when King Jehoshaphat of Judah was being threatened by three armies, and his situation looked very grim. Let's listen to what Jehoshaphat did when faced with this hopeless situation. Judah was assembled to seek the Lord, and he said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? In your hand are strength and might, and there is no one who can oppose you. We have not strength enough to stand before this great army that is coming against us, and we do not know what we should do, but our eyes are fixed on you. What did he do along with the people of Judah? They started out in that passage by praising God. They praised him for who he was. They praised him because regardless of their circumstances, they knew his character never changes. God always is worthy of our praise, no matter what situation we may find ourselves in. They praised him and declared their faith in him. They cut the lines of communication with the dark powers, and it gave them an eternal perspective. 
As the story unfolds, we read that there is a word from the Lord to them. It says, do not fear, nor be dismayed because of this great army, for the battle is yours, is not yours, but God's. It will not be necessary for you to fight in this conflict. Take your positions, stand, and observe the deliverance of the Lord for you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Tomorrow, go out before them, and the Lord will be with you. And I love this quote. It says, fear is a false forecast that God will prove unfaithful. Fear is a false forecast that God will prove unfaithful. They were given a direct order. Do not fear. Take your position. Stand. And watch the Lord fight for you. And what happened next? The king bowed down and worshipped God. Then the priests, like you and me, got up and praised loudly. They praised the Lord. They were praising God, thanking God in advance for his faithfulness in what he was going to do on their behalf. They worshiped, believing that they would enter into those promises. And I love this next part. It says, early in the morning they left for the desert. As they set out, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out to the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Jehoshaphat was a wise man and he trusted God. He was confident that God would again prove himself faithful. The battle was the Lord's. But without a doubt, through the world's eyes, he looked very foolish. Here, they were going out to battle, and rather than putting his best spearmen or his best archers or fastest chariots out on the front line, who did he send? He sent the worshipers. The worshipers. Can you imagine these opposing armies? They probably thought, hmm. We got this. But little did they know, God inhabits the praise of his people. And God went before the army and fought on their behalf, and the victory belonged to the Lord. And as the story continues, we, we see Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah continuing to praise God. They praised God when they won, before they carried off the plunder. They praised God again upon returning home, continually praising. And I recently read, if we want the things of heaven to happen here on earth... We first must do on earth the things that are being done in heaven. So what's going on in heaven right now? Praise. God is on his throne being praised. So if praise is something that takes up the total time and energies of heaven, then that needs to be our pattern here on earth. Praise aligns us with heaven. Praise allows us to have an eternal perspective in our situations, in our life here on earth. Praise positions us to receive God's promises. God makes his home in our praises, and wherever God is, anything is possible. And to tie into what Conrad has been talking to us about the, with the Israelites, while in the wilderness they were giving very, given very specific directions as to how and where to set up their camp. And it was in a very disciplined and very organized way. And it had to have caused some fear in the Canaanite nations when they um, climbed the mountain and looked down on this massive camp, not in utter chaos, but in order. But I think the, the kicker would have been when they saw this order and then they looked and they saw this pillar of fire. Like, can you imagine? Like, all their lives, all they knew was worshiping 
idols, dead idols of stone and wood, and here, for the very first time, they were witness to a living God. Can you imagine their fear? And guess what? That nation with the living God was knocking at their door. They were coming for them. The Israelites had to have seemed like an unstoppable force. Because like I said before, wherever God is, we know anything is possible. And as long as God was in their camp, the Israelites were invincible. The Canaanites knew that the only possible way to defeat them was to get God out of their camp. And the only way to do that was to corrupt their worship. Satan was at work then, and he is at work now, doing, his, doing that very thing in churches all across the nation. And sadly, the broader church has allowed Satan to deceive us into thinking that worship is about us and for us. We have taken our eyes off of Jesus. We have adopted the that's good, that's good enough mentality when it comes to our worship. And that mentality will never bring anything excellent into the sanctuary of our Lord. We are to bring excellence when we worship, our very best. All of us, we were created to worship. We are to worship in spirit and truth. Worship has become its own musical genre. We can produce it, we can record it, we can package it, we can market it, we can sell it at Target. We have done the church a great disservice in allowing them to think that worship is a type of music. Because if worship was only music, then that allows us to sit there and judge it as pleasing or not. It allows us to sit there and say, you know, I'm just not feeling it this morning, and I'm not going to worship. Or maybe we are basing whether we worship solely on our personal preference. With this mentality, worship has quickly become something for people and not for God. We have lost why we truly worship. We have lost the seriousness in which worship should be handled. And I pray the worship at our church continues to be pure. You know, we're, we're, we're ever growing. We're not there yet, and we will never arrive until we have crossed over. But I desire for the worship at our church to grow in freedom during our times of worship together, but not just in our times together, but also when we disband and you're at home and you're having your personal times of worship. I want the worship at our church to grab the attention of God because God responds to worship. That our worship here at Elizabethtown Mennonite would be a pleasing aroma to him. That our extravagant worship would bless his heart. God is calling you to be more than a recipient of ministry. He is calling you to be ministers of his grace. You have a part to play in this story. How? You can worship extravagantly with abandon because extravagant worship brings extravagant results. You can pray for the worship leaders and the worship teams because this is spiritual warfare, right? Like it's not about picking our favorite songs. You can pray for our own personal times of worship with Jesus because as worship leaders, we can't adequately lead you where we have not yet been. That's a, that's a, Big, 
responsibility. We need your prayers. You can lead a worship team. You can write creative readings or read scripture during worship service. You can sing on a team. You can play in instruments. We need instrumentalists. You can declare victory through flags or creative movement. If you like the tech side of things, we have projection and sound. If you like creating pleasing spaces that point people to Jesus, we have a place for you through creating visuals and decorations. Psalms 8.2 says, From the lips of children and infants you have adorned adained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And that verse tells us that even our babies have been ordained by the Most High to silence the enemy with praise. There is no age limit to worship. And just like Bethany reminded us last week that there's no junior Holy Spirit, there's no junior worshipers. This past week, um, as we were driving, Easton and Adley, usually they like to, to play their songs which I understand. Um, and our van has a repeat button, and they usually fixate on one song, and then they say, Mommy, push repeat. Okay? I push repeat, and we listen to that song, no lie, like four days in a row. And some songs are like two minutes. So on a 20-minute drive, you can do the math. Um, but this song that they were fixated on this week was a very powerful reminder to me. They were singing their hearts out in the van. They were singing, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. And that's why we worship. Because he first loved us. Their sweet voices lifted high in praise. They, it was so pure and so powerful, and I can guarantee you that the darkness trembled. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. God doesn't want what you're going to be or what you hope to be. He wants all that you are today. You have a part to play in God's plan. Obviously, I would love if it was with worship. But any of these ministries, there is a place for you. So let's not waste another day, and let's get you plugged in. We're going to move um, into a time of worship, and we're going to listen to three songs. And this is a time that we are carving out creating a space like Heidi shared for us to reflect, for us to pray, for us to worship. Um, and I just want to say, this coming week, um, there, there are two albums um, that I'd like to recommend that I, that I play on repeat, and I encourage you to, um, to look these up. Um, the first one is by Christine DeMarco, where his light was. The second one is by Bethel Music Victories. And these are powerful God-inspired albums, but on the heels of what I just shared, I encourage you to invite Jesus into your times of listening to these, these songs so that they can move from just being music to worship. These songs will bless you. These songs are powerful, and I um, 
I encourage you to worship Jesus through them. Um, so we're going to start with a song called Fear Not. It's going to be a newer song, but I encourage you to use this time to reflect and to pray. But before we do that, um, I'd like us just to sing um, the chorus of Oh, How I Love Jesus together. Okay. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh. 